Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our latest episode at the Diplomatic History Channel here at New Books Network. I'm your host, Grant Golub, and I'm delighted today to welcome Will Imboden um, to discuss his excellent new book, The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, The Cold War, and the World on the Brink, um, which was just published last month in November 2022. Uh, Will is the Executive Director and William Powers Jr. Chair at the Clemens Center for National Security at the University of Texas, Austin. He's also an Associate Professor uh, at the LBJ School of Public Affairs. He's a Distinguished Scholar at the Robert Strauss Center for International Security and Law, and he's the Editor-in-Chief of the Texas National Security Review. Um, not only is Will an academic uh, and a scholar, but he's also had a distinguished career as an American policymaker. Um, he was previously a senior director for strategic planning on the National Security Council at the White House, uh, where he worked on a range of foreign policy issues, including the national security strategy, strategic forecasting, democracy and governance, and a lot more. Um, and he's also worked at the State Department as a member of the policy planning staff and as a special advisor in the Office of International Religious Freedom, um, both in the United States Senate and in the House of Representatives. So Will has not only um, written about these issues quite extensively and widely, but he's also lived them as a policymaker, which really provides for a very unique perspective. Uh, it's not very common um, when you get really weighty books like this to have someone who's kind of seen it all. So Will, um, we're so delighted to have you here on the pod. Thank you, Grant. It's great to be with you. Um, so I think it's prudent to get started by talking about um, what, what's really this book all about? I mean, obviously, we just mentioned the title, right? It's about Reagan and uh, and the Cold War, but but really, give us sort of a, a thirty thousand foot overview of of really what uh, what this book is all about. Yeah, I've been trying to accomplish a few things with the book. Um, one is a, a story, a new perspective on the 1980s and the peaceful end of the Cold War. And that's, of course, why the, the subtitle references the, the Cold War. Um, another is a deeper dive and I hope fresh perspective on uh, the Reagan presidency itself, especially on foreign and defense policy. You know, I, I don't really get into any any domestic policy or, or much on politics in the book, but, uh, you know, a fresh perspective on uh, President Reagan as a leader, as a person, and then his, you know, his his, his team of rivals, as I uh, refer to them, borrowing, of course, the um, vivid Doris Kearns Goodwin uh, phrase. Um, and then the third is um, a little bit of a broader story about, the Reagan administration's role in the global transformations of the 1980s that lay a lot of the foundation for what becomes the 21st century that we're living in now. You know, the peaceful end of the Cold War is a part of that, but, um, you know, this is the beginnings of the 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 most, you know, the era of globalization, um, major transformations in Asia, major wave of democratizations, uh, growth in free trade and the, the open trading order, but also some of the buffets of that. Uh, it's the modern debut of jihadist terrorism um, in 
many ways. Uh, and so these all have their Cold War strands, but I, I wanted to bring them out as, as issues in their own right and show those antecedents uh, in the 1980s and then how they uh, in turn um, uh, shape or contribute to the, the century we're in now. So I think a good place to start is talking about Reagan's vision for foreign policy, right? I mean, he gets elected in a landslide victory in 1980 over the incumbent Jimmy Carter, um, which is a uh, an election that, that features a lot of different issues. A lot of it is rooted uh, in domestic affairs and domestic politics, but but Reagan also has a really scathing foreign policy critique of Carter, um, which really resonates with an American public that had been you know buffeted by high inflation, massive energy shocks, economic malaise, stagflation. Um, and Reagan really promises, I think, to restore the American image abroad and and I think make Americans believe in their country again, right? He has this really unique ability to communicate with the public, this vision that makes Americans want to be American, right? And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what when Reagan comes into office uh, in 1981, what's his foreign policy vision for the United States? Yeah, this is a really important question, and uh, you touched on some of the some of the key themes there. So I'll, of course, just uh, elaborate on on that a little bit. Um, and first, before I even get to Reagan's foreign policy vision that he arrives in office with, which is very important, um, want to emphasize one point which uh, I had not fully appreciated until I was diving into into the research on this is even while during his 1980 campaign he'd laid out you know a pretty clear foreign policy vision and we'll we'll talk about what what that was and Certainly, most Republicans had embraced it, although not all Republicans. You know, he's trying to heal a deep, decade-long rift within the Republican Party. Um, not all Americans fully bought into it, uh, and a number of uh, you know independent voters and certainly a lot of Democratic voters and some Republicans were still fairly skeptical of Reagan. Uh, you know, worrying that he would be too belligerent, too reckless, uh, that he was, you know, the cowboy with his you know, finger on the nuclear button, as as it was sometimes put. And yet, very few Americans supported Carter's foreign policy. They saw Carter's foreign policy as as a failure. Uh, we we can talk some more about that. But I think looking back, it's pretty clear that. Um, even though Reagan wins, you know, an overwhelming victory in 1980, where he ends up carrying, I think, 44 states. I'm, I may be a little off on the number, but it, but it's close to that. A lot of Americans who were voting based on foreign policy weren't so much voting for Reagan as they were voting against Carter. Uh, they they knew they didn't like the Carter foreign policy that wasn't working. They were intrigued or maybe open to this Reagan guy and his foreign policy, but they weren't fully bought into it. So it was more of an anti-Carter than pro-Reagan vote on foreign policy. More like, okay, let's give the other guy the other other guy a chance. And Reagan was aware of that. You know, even a week or two before the election, you know, polls were still showing showing it to be a much closer one. There was even a, a chance that Carter might win. Uh, so Reagan's overwhelming victory on election day was very late breaking. Um, and there were you know a number of reasons to that, but part of it was I think voter hesitation about his foreign policy and, you know, can, can we trust this guy? And so Reagan, um, even into the fall, you know, is giving a series of foreign policy speeches and statements trying to reassure the American people, I will be a steady hand on the ship of state. Uh, you know, I, I will not be a reckless warmonger. This is when he even... Um, you know, a couple of times starts using the word peacemaker that, you know, he wants to be, a, wants, wants to be a peacemaker. Um, 
Okay. Now, to your original question on what his policies and, and convictions actually were, this is where it also became pr- pretty clear to me through the research, and I benefited from you know some great work that previous uh, scholars had done uh, on 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 Reagan's you know, background. Uh, Henry Now would would be one. Uh, Steve Hayward wouldn't it be another. Martin uh, and Annalise Anderson, Chiron Chiron Skinner, ones who had done good work on Reagan's worldview formation in the '60s and '70s. Um, he he arrives in office with a very different theory of the case on the Cold War. So he'd been a big critic of the detente, frame, detente throughout the 1970s. Uh, he thought, as one of his staff put it, that detente meant losing as slowly as possible, um, that even though it had you know, temporarily succeeded in uh, mitigating Cold War tensions uh, between the U.S. and, and Soviet Union, uh, that it had turned into a framework that the Soviets were taking advantage of and exploiting. Um, and so he, he arrives... He, he arrives in office with a very different theory of the case in the Cold War of um, rather than seeing it as a great power standoff to be managed as the detente framework uh, had, had uh, promulgated, he sees it as a battle of ideas that can be won. You know, obviously, this is exemplified in that famous phrase of his, which I put in my book and you see elsewhere that he said his theory of the case in the Cold War is we win, they lose. And that may sound a little jingoistic, but within it, there was actually, I think, a more sophisticated set of strategic concepts. Um, First, that. This, that, as I mentioned earlier, detente was uh, the reverse of that. Detente was giving the Soviets an edge and causing the United States to lose and uh, be on a losing trajectory in the Cold War. The second was a belief that the Soviet Union was much more vulnerable than conventional wisdom at the time. Uh, that, you know, applying pressure on the system, that it, it could be weakened, it could be cracked, it would not just about be deterring it, but it could even be, be brought, brought down. Um, and related to that was because Reagan saw the Cold War as primarily a battle of ideas, um, uh, he thought it was a battle of ideas that could be won rather than a great power contest that could only, only be, only be managed. Um, but also from the get go, uh, I think it's pretty clear that he also, uh, wanted, uh, a path of outreach and diplomacy with the Soviets. You know, he was always committed to negotiations. And so even while he's talking about this pressure strategy and a belief that, you know, this evil empire can be defeated, that the idea of Soviet communism can be, can be defeated, um, that he wanted to keep the Cold War cold. He did not want to turn it into a hot war. Uh, he, he wanted a, a peaceful resolution to, to the conflict. And I think that was there from the get-go with him. Uh, we can see some strains of you know some comments and essays he would do in the 60s and 70s uh even if that that got lost in the public debate and the final thing to mention is he also part of his theory of the case was he very much believed it was possible for the united states to be renewed that um american economic power american military power could be restored could go from being um a a liability and a weakness in the cold war to an asset and a strength um and that has all sorts of components you know, national morale, military effectiveness, economic dynamism, restoration of alliances, you know, all the different components and uh, lines of action for, for expressing national power. But um, that was very much a part of his own, his own theory of the case, that with that American renewal, uh, one could then bring these, these pressure and outreach um, strands towards the Soviet Union. So that, that's how I would summarize it. I, I, I know I laid out a lot for you there. Yeah. Um, who, who, are the, who are the types of people that are 
surrounding Reagan, um, not only, I think, before he becomes president, because I think that's important to note um, for the development of his foreign policy views, right? He had been governor of California before he had been president. Before that, he had had been a a Hollywood actor and a and a GE spokesman and then a, and a radio host, right? Not not a typical career um, for someone developing, um, you know, a pretty well thought out foreign policy vision. But it's clear that you know he he does he does obviously have that, and, and it's much more developed than I think a lot of people coming into the White House might have might have had. But I also think it's important to talk about some of the influences uh, of people around him. So who are, who are the people that are surrounding him when he comes into the White House? And I mean, my always take on it is that it's sort of a mix of people from his political career in California, you know, with other more establishment types in the Republican Party is trying to bridge this sort of outsider persona he has with some of these more experienced D.C. hands. Yeah, um, there's a few themes I want to highlight in this. It's a very important part of the story, as you as as you note. And again, while my book focuses on Reagan as a central actor, it really is a story about his entire administration and you know some of the many colorful characters who are a part of it. So uh, I'll, I'll mention some specific names, but a few themes I want to highlight about the kind of people who um, surround him at first, who are part of his campaign, and then a part of his uh, his his initial administration team. The first is the role of intellectuals, uh, and I. I was really struck by this uh, uh, during in 1980, early 1980, when he's announcing all of his foreign policy advisors for his campaign. And, you know, he puts out a press release listing the you know uh, the 60 or so names of his his advisors and all the different foreign policy issues. Um, something like 48 out of those 60 hold PhDs. I, I make you know the numbers are my book. I can't remember the exact numbers, but it's an overwhelming number of them hold PhDs, and many of those are coming from. Uh, Harvard, Stanford, Georgetown, uh, uh, prominent prominent think tanks. Uh, so it's a disproportionate number of intellectuals. Uh, you know, these are capable foreign policy hands too, but these are not just technocrats. These are people who share Reagan's sense of the Cold War being a battle of ideas. And even though he himself is not an intellectual, you know, I would tell you, you know, he wouldn't claim to be. I want to put that disclaimer out there. I think he is more of a man of ideas than has been appreciated. And because ideas are central to his foreign policy, he attracts people who uh, who think who think likewise or thinking, ah, oh, yes, um, here is a uh, here is an American political leader who appreciates the roles of ideas and we as intellectuals are committed to ideas too. And so I was that was one thing I was really, really struck by. Um, you know, Richard Pipes, the of course the great Russian historian from Harvard would uh, would exemplify this, but you know, many others we could cite. Um, the second theme that comes out surprisingly on the people that uh, come into office with him and that he's surrounded by are a really high number of Democrats, um, Democratic foreign policy experts who, through the 1970s, had grown disillusioned with their party, uh, especially with the Carter administration um, and, its, and its foreign policies. Some of these are the original neoconservatives. And I use that term cautiously because it's, it's, uh, it means something very different now than it did at the time. But, you know, one of the original meanings of it was hawkish Democrats. Um, and, um, and quite a few of them, you know, support Reagan in the 1980 campaign and then he and then join his administration. I'll just rattle off a number, you know, Paul Nitza, the, you know, the eminent uh, arm, arms control expert who served in, you know, almost every previous Democratic administration from Truman uh, forward, aside from Carter. Uh, Max Campbellman, 
um, Gene Kirkpatrick, you know, lifelong Democrat, been member of the Democratic National Count, uh, National Committee, even, um, uh, but but supports Reagan, becomes his ambassador to the UN. Um, Elliot Abrams, uh, who had been uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan's chief of staff and had previously worked for Scoop Jackson. Richard Pearl, who had worked for Scoop Jackson. Paul Paul Wolfowitz. Um, Gene Gene Rostow. All these are prominent Democrats. Had worked for Democratic candidates. Had worked for Democratic uh, political leaders. Um, and continue to think of themselves as Democrats when they support Reagan and then join the Reagan administration. So that's that's another theme. But then the final final big theme is, um, and this accounts for some of the frictions and problems he inca- he has with his his own own administration and why they weren't always a team, is um, he is trying to heal uh, or bring together um, the deep rift within the Republican Party between, if you might, you know, the the moderates and the conservatives or between the the detente, detente Nicks and then um, some of the more hawkish Reagan insurgents, you know, between the Nixon and Ford and Kissinger camp and then, and then the, the Reagan camp. And so that's why on Nixon's urging, Reagan picks Al Haig as his initial secretary of state. Um, you know, Reagan didn't really know Haig very well, but Haig of course, had been a senior official in the, in the Nixon administration, extremely capable, right? You know, retired four-star, had commanded all U.S. forces in Egypt, in, in Europe, um, uh, had been, you know, effectively kept the White House together as chief of staff during Watergate. Um, uh, but, but is you know, from the from from the from the Nixon wing, um, and then because Reagan had picked George H.W. Bush as his running mate, and Bush uh, after after Bush was his main primary rival in 1980, uh, Reagan brings in Jim Baker, you know. Bush's closest friend and who had, had run Bush's campaign brings him in as, as White House chief of staff. Ian Baker, supremely capable, uh, arguably the most effective White House chief of staff in history, but had not been a part of the earlier earlier Reagan camp. Um, but then also, as you mentioned, uh, alongside some of these moderates and some of these from other factions of the GOP, Reagan brings some of his his own crew from California. You know, Ed, Ed, Ed Meese, uh, Mike, Mike, Mike Deaver, Bill Clark, who ends up playing a very, very key role. And they're, you know, overall more conservative, uh, you know, kind of loyal Reaganites, if you will. And, uh, of course, eager to support him and his new administration. But they very quickly uh, get crosswise with and start feuding with uh, some of the some of the others that I that I'd mentioned, uh, mentioned as well. So it's a very colorful cast of characters, you know, at their best, they're bringing their different convictions and, and skills and, uh, and backgrounds to the creative ferment of, of foreign policymaking at their worst, they're leading backbiting, leaking, backbiting, feuding, not serving Reagan well, um, hurting the administration. And it's, it's, uh, it's a very acrimonious time. So I think that that really kind of brings up this idea then of, of foreign policy management. And I mean, as you just laid out, right, we've got a really wide ranging cast of characters, you know, team arrivals, as you call them, and, you know, to borrow George Kern's Goodwin's phrase, how is Reagan managing all of these disparate personalities in terms of the actual management of his foreign policy and, and its implementation? Because right, other presidents have had... Um, unwieldy groups of people advising them as well. And, and some of them have been quite good at managing them. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, Franklin Roosevelt come to mind. Some of them have not been very good at managing them. Uh, a, a certain recent former president comes to mind. How was, how was Reagan at managing all of these different personalities as he was trying to actually implement his foreign policy? 
Yeah, overall, not great. Uh, and and again, you know, as you know, my book uh, in the main presents a very favorable assessment of Reagan uh, and his policy achievements. And you know, I, I hope I make a persuasive case there. But I try to be candid about his his shortcomings uh, and management. I think is certainly certainly one of them. You know, he is personally. Uh, Con- conflict averse. Uh, you know, he doesn't like it when people are fighting with each other, but he's also very reluctant to referee those disputes, to crackheads pull people together um, and say, I- I'm signed with you. I'm not signed with you. You got to you got to get in line. Uh, so he will let some of these disputes fester. And even though overall in the aggregate, he has a you know very talented, capable uh, administ- administration, some, some more than others, um, he himself doesn't pay a lot of deep attention to personnel selection. And so at key junctures, you know, when it's time to pick a new national security advisor, for example, uh, he doesn't pay very careful attention to it. Sometimes it's just, you know, whoever's the ne- next person up and, and uh, you know, ends up with a few people who are not terribly well, well suited to it. And so one of the um, challenges in studying the Reagan administration is understanding and navigating these staff feuds and differences understanding Reagan's own deficiencies as a manager, and yet still trying to um, study the the policies themselves and see what works and, and what, what doesn't. Now, Reagan at times, you know, I, I don't want to go too far with this, uh, at key moments when decisions needed to be, be made on important policy questions uh, and matters of strategy and principle, he would make those decisions. He'd be decisive. Uh, if it's an issue he cared about or knew was a, a top, top priority, he would get involved. Um, and, and and including if that meant telling you know some of his key advisors I'm not siding with you I'm siding with the other guy, and we see this especially uh, with his relationship with George Shultz, his um, his secretary his secretary of state for the after Hague for six and a half years, who Reagan forges a very close and effective partnership with. I think they're remarkably effective. Uh, you know, President, uh, Secretary of State tandem, and Reagan often ends up siding with Schultz against Weinberger, against against the Pentagon, against some other other voices on some key policy issues. And so he 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 is willing to make those choices. It's just not something that he he prefers to do or does all the time. Mm. Thinking about some of the you know the very many policy achievements that that Reagan does hold, I think it's imprudent to start with uh, the biggest one, which is of course managing America's relationship with with the Soviet Union. So I was wondering if you could talk us through in the first year of Reagan's presidency. Right, he he comes into office being seen as very much this cold warrior, um, while also as you as you pointed out, trying to say you know I'm not going to get America into a hot war. You know I'm going to be prudent about the use of force, and I and I think that does bear out over his eight years in office. What's the approach towards the Soviet Union in fulfilling that very, you know, pithy, but very memorable phase, we win, they lose? Yeah. Um, so the first thing to be said, and I just want to reemphasize, we touched on this a little bit earlier, is Reagan, you know, from day one, when he takes the oath of office and becomes president, he has a firm set of convictions on this new theory of the case in, in the Cold War, how he wants to uh, adopt a more confrontational posture towards the Soviets, how he wants to put pressure on them. You know, he believes that the Soviet communism can be defeated, uh, you know, everything I, I, I laid out. Uh, and I'll come back to some of the specifics uh, uh, measures he takes in that first year to, to implement that. But it also needs to be emphasized that during his first year, his 
primary focus is domestically, it's restoring the American economy. That's what he um, devotes most of his political efforts to, um, you know, getting his tax cuts and um, deregulation packages through the, the Congress. Uh, that's what most of his messaging to the American people is. Um, uh, so that uh, that's where, you know, most of his personal personal time and, uh, you know, political capital and emotional energy is, is being is being spent. Um, doesn't mean he's entirely, you know, neglecting or shunting foreign policy to the side. The one exception to that on the national security front is he does put some political capital into getting his um, you know, a substantial increase in the Pentagon budget in, in his first year. But on that, he actually doesn't need to spend as much political capital as you might think, because there was already overwhelming bipartisan consensus that we needed to increase Pentagon spending, that it had been so horribly under-resourced in the wake of Vietnam under Ford and especially under under Carter. And so whereas Reagan needed to twist a lot of Democratic arms to get his tax cuts through, uh, he didn't need to do as much politicking to get the defense expansion through because he inherits a very strong bipartisan consensus. That later phrase, the Democrats in later years um, are not as Enthused about further defense spending increases, but you know the the Pentagon budget increases. Uh, and again, I'm the numbers are a little fuzzy from memory, but something like a fifteen percent increase in his first year, uh, and it passes almost unanimously in the House and Senate. Just a, a tiny handful of dissenting nay votes. Um, now, on his Soviet policy in, in the first term. Um, he does. Uh, we see from the beginning of his uh, in that first year, him putting into place these dual tracks of pressure and outreach. Some of the pressure is rhetorical. You know, famously at his first press conference, he gives an unvarnished condemnation of the Soviet system for its its deceit and its treachery, and he does that in very plain, blunt language, which uh, you know causes all sorts of consternation and heartburn in the Kremlin and then among uh, American elite opinion, you know, confirms their views. Oh, this guy is just an aggressive, unhinged warmonger. Uh, Famously, he goes to Notre Dame in May of 1981 to give the commencement address there. And he does that self-consciously because Carter had given the Notre Dame commencement address in 1977, his first year, and it had you know, uh, bemoaned America's inordinate fear of communism, in Carter's words. Um, and Reagan goes with a very different message, saying, you know, we are right to be, uh, you know, afraid of communism, but also um, we are right to condemn it. And that's when he says, you know, the West won't contain communism, it will transcend it as, and I'm paraphrasing here as some, you know, bizarre chapter in human history whose last pages are even now being, being written. Right. So a very different message. Um, uh, and this is all, all in that first year. Um, but at the same time, you also see outreach measures in the first year after his, after he barely survives the assassination attempt in um, at the end of March of 1981, just two months in office as he's still recovering. He handwrites that lengthy and really fascinating letter to Brezhnev. Uh, that's almost a peace offering saying, you know, I want us to be able to sit down and talk. You know, the two of us together really do hold the fate of the world in, in our hands. Um, I don't want the world to be destroyed in nuclear war. Uh, you know, there's, as you know from the book, there's more complicated backstory to the different iterations of that letter. But the very fact of Reagan writing it and, and sending it to Brezhnev, even though Brezhnev you know, does not reciprocate, is, is really notable. Um, and then one final thing to mention is... Um, I think I'm getting the date right. In October of 81, Reagan gives his first big speech on U.S.-Soviet relations. And that's when he makes a very 
uh, you know, direct offer of arms control negotiations and lays out the zero option, the zero zero option on intermediate range nuclear missiles, uh, which again is seen as as radical. It's large, it, you know, the concept is first uh, uh, brought to him by by Richard Pearl. It's seen as radical, um, uh, uh, you know, almost almost irresponsible. You know, rather we should be talking about pruning numbers, uh, not not eliminating all INF. But for Reagan, he's trying to put down a bold and audacious marker. Um, and and you know transform the uh, what he saw was a, you know the the stalemate in in the Cold War of uh, of you know previous arms control treaties which were just slowing the growth of arsenals uh, and so another effort there to change the strategic equation. Um, oh, sorry, Grant. One I know I've been going on a little long with this one. One other really important point in. Uh, Early in 81, he also, uh, in his correspondence with Richard Pipes uh, on the NSC staff and their beginnings of laying out a strategy, he makes very clear that his pressure on the Soviets is designed in part to induce the Soviet system to produce a reformist leader, uh, to strengthen the reformist uh, impulses within the Soviet system. And so that's why I think we can give him a little more credit than is appreciated for what later, you know, with the later advent of, of Gorbachev, that Reagan had been from the beginning, wanting, uh, not just wanting, but trying to pressure that system to produce a reformer. Why do you, picking up on, on your, you're talking about his nuclear disarmament proposals and the zero option. Why is it not seen as credible at the time that this was a viable offer? You know, especially given that there is this through line in Reagan's thinking that, Right. He wants a, a nuclear free world. Right. And he doesn't he he very much believes that nuclear weapons um, should be abolished over time. Why is this proposal then not taken seriously, especially by anti-nuclear activists, especially in light of his later achievements with Gorbachev on, you know, for example, the INF Treaty and the fact that they almost came close to eliminating both nuclear arsenals in Reykjavik? Why is this not seen as a, as a credible uh, option? Yeah, very good question. And I'm glad you highlight Reagan being a nuclear abolitionist because that's uh, a core conviction of his, but not fully appreciated. I think there's a couple of reasons. The first is he also, in the short term, was committed to the growth and modernization of the American nuclear arsenal, you know, as he... um, uh, as he's trying to push the the MX missile, of course, uh, the the B one bomber, um, and some of these uh, you know some of these other new uh, new programs, uh, and he's being very clear about the need to strengthen and modernize our strategic forces. Uh, a lot of his critics and anti nuclear activists are only focusing on that, and therefore they will not take seriously at all any of his you know, however sincerely held or, you know, genuine um, proposals to reduce and eliminate nuclear weapons. So that, that's the first part. People people had a prefabricated uh, opinion of him, almost something of a caricature and, you know, how the human mind works. We're just not willing to entertain or listen or uh, consider uh you know, different, pres- uh, different factors that might challenge that presumption. Um, the second is at the time, of course, the Soviets had deployed their SS-20 intermediate range nuclear missiles all throughout the Western part of the Soviet Union targeted European capitals. And the United States had not yet deployed any of our intermediate range nuclear forces, the Pershing twos and, and Glickums. Um, and so 
uh, some of his critics said, this just isn't realistic. The Soviets have deployed hundreds of SS-20s. We don't have any of them out there. This is such a disproportionate, uh, disproportionately unfavorable proposal Reagan's putting out for the Soviets. It's having them you know, get rid of all their deployed missiles when all we'd be saying is we won't deploy ours in, in the first place. Uh, and so that was another reason that it was derided. It was just seen as unrealistic. It, it, it's, it's fascinating, especially given, you know, the, the, the later, you know, serious attempts that are made at nuclear abolition. I, I remember a few years ago, there was an, an old New York Times magazine piece that I kind of had stumbled across where, you know, the, the right wing of the Republican Party, um, after while Reagan is negotiating for the INF Treaty and then afterward, um, you know, they – Right, have been some of his strongest supporters. They they come out and, and really vociferously attack him, you know, signing the INF treaty uh, towards the end of his presidency. And I and I found that to be really fascinating. That you know he had spent so much time, you know, cultivating people um, within within his own party and, and really building strong links with them. And then you know he they felt that he double crossed them and and then you know started to attack it. Thankfully he, he they were the administration was successful in those efforts. But you, when you were just talking about some of the opposition to the zero option, it reminded me of of some of the uh, the issues that he had to deal with um, when he signed the INF treaty as well. Um, yes, I was. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit as well about how America's allies are, perceive Reagan in his first years in office. You know, what's their what's their view of him and his administration? Yeah, um, I think it's 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 mixed initially. Um, and as you know, I try to make a case in the book for Reagan's, uh, you know, the importance of allies. I even at one point say, and I mean this not hyperbole, that he's the 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 American president most devoted to the allies of every president we've had in our history. And of course, that's a modern comment since you know before FDR, we didn't really have have allies, uh, but they're supremely important to him. That said, when he first comes into office. Um, uh, it, it, it's, it's a mixed assessment. Most of the allies had not liked Jimmy Carter. Uh, they just had found him unreliable, personally difficult to deal with. This isn't even a political or ideological comment. Uh, like I said, they, they had not cared for him. And so Reagan is in some ways seen as a something of a, a breath of fresh air, kind of like, well, he, he can't be as bad as, as Carter was, the allies are thinking. Um of course, Margaret Thatcher, who had been in office a little over a year by the time Reagan um, comes in, she welcomes him. You know, they had met a few times in the 1970s and she, you know, shares his conservative uh, conviction. So she's excited about it. But um, Trudeau in Canada, uh, Mitterrand in France, um, Helmut Schmidt in West Germany, they're a little more skeptical of Reagan. You know, they're more uh, uh, generally of the of the left or the center left. And so they're ideologically, they're going to be suspicious they're not sure that they they're worried that he is going to be, you know, a, a reckless warmonger. That's part of it. Um, they're concerned about some of his economic policies, especially his um, support for Volcker and high interest rates to rein in uh, American inflation. Uh, that was causing those high interest rates, which we now know worked in reining in inflation. Um would cause great heartburn for our European allies because uh, they were sucking up so much European capital, investment capital. You know, so many European investors are saying, "Hey, let's um, let's buy you know American uh, bonds," and uh, because we're getting a you know twenty percent return, uh, and so it may have been helpful for them individually, but they were uh, sending all their capital to the United States rather than investing it in in Germany, in West Germany, and France, in in, in Great Britain. Um, and then, and then in Japan, there's uh, 
uh, uh, you know, some openness to Reagan because a sense that he was rightly so that he wanted to reprioritize U.S.-Japan relations and move past uh, some of the trade tensions we were having, but also a wariness about what he was going to what he was going to ask of them. Uh, so, yeah, so I would say it's a mixed assessment from the allies. What are what are some of the big crises and foreign policy issues besides trying to um, remake the America's place in the Cold War and, and try and re- regain the upper hand um, with the Soviet Union in the superpower competition? What are some of the other big foreign policy issues that Reagan's dealing with in his first term? Sure. Yeah. So uh, a big one is, of course, our economic tensions uh, and trade uh, trade imbalances with Japan. Right. I mean, that occupies a tremendous amount of his time. I, I added it up and he meets with more Japanese officials during his first couple of years than um, you know any other country by far. I, I don't have the exact numbers, but he probably meets with twice as many Japanese officials, uh, you know, prime minister, trade minister, uh, you know, finance minister, foreign minister, as he does any in any other country. And so that that's not a discrete crisis. It's not a one day blow up, obviously, but that is um, a major foreign policy challenge, which also has domestic policy implications that he is dealing with. And of course, his whole focus there is trying to transform the U.S.-Japan relationship from primarily economic rivals to primarily strategic partners. And, and we can come back to that. I think he's uh, remarkably successful in that respect. But then uh, you've got uh, a series of crises in the Middle East. Uh, so in June of 81, the Israelis do their um, surprise attack and uh, bomb um, the Osirak nuclear reactor in Iraq, trying to stop Iraq's nuclear program. Uh, you know, that causes a, a you know, major rift between um, the the white the United States and and Israel. Uh, the um, in the spring of of eighty two, Argentina invades the Falklands. You know, Falklands Islands, trying to take those back from the, from the British. Uh, very difficult episode, as you know from the book, because the U.S. Of course, you know the British are our most important ally, but we're also informally allied with the the Argentines, right? They were an important anti-communist partner in the hemisphere, and it causes a real rift within the Reagan administration. Which side are we going to take in this? Eventually, they side with the British, but not until uh, about a month goes by, and they grow too exasperated with the uh, with the Argentines. Um, Israel's invasion of Lebanon in uh, I want to say June of '82 is another huge one, kind of you know set the entire Middle East uh, aflame. Um, and, you know, later that's, you know, the antecedent for Reagan um, deploying the Marines there as, uh, as, as peacekeepers. Uh, and then, you know, the awful terrorist bombing of the Marine barracks, which kills 241, uh, 241 Marines. Uh, so that's another one. And then need to mention Grenada too, when there's another communist coup in the Caribbean island of Grenada, and Reagan is worried about the 600 American medical students there being taken hostage in October of 83. Uh, on very short notice, he decides to authorize a U.S. invasion of Grenada to you know, oust the, the communist regime to make sure that we can you know, protect and free the, uh, the American medical students and, um, and stop that from being another communist to hold in, in the region. So uh, uh, so a whole, whole series of crises. It's a, uh, and others I could mention, too, but that just gives you some initial flavor. What, um, you know, I think that something that is not recognized very well about Reagan is that despite all of the, you know, belligerent rhetoric that we've talked about, especially in the first part of his presidency, I I think that he's someone who's very judicious about the use of force, right? He's cautious about um, not necessarily projecting American military power abroad, but actually employing it directly into a conflict, um, 
And but you just mentioned the the 1983 invasion of Grenada. Why is that? How does he come to decide that they need to send in U.S. Marines to uh, to try and reverse the the coup that happens there and and also save the American medical students? Yeah, um, I, and I will uh, certainly look forward to answering that directly. But I also want to pick up and affirm the your pref- your framing point there, which is Reagan is very restrained, cautious, judicious about the use of force, and so he. You know, as we talked earlier, is very committed, of course, to expanding and modernizing the American military. Um, uh, but he he sees that as necessary for deterring uh, the the Soviets and also to strengthen diplomacy. But that's very different than actually wanting to uh, you know pull the trigger to send the troops into combat um, will, uh, rec- recklessly. And so, you know, some of this is the legacy of Vietnam. Uh, you know, when he takes the oath of office January 20th, 1981, that's eight years almost to the day, not exactly, but almost to the day that the last American combat troop had left Vietnam. And it's, you know, six years after South Vietnam had fallen. And so that wasn't, Vietnam wasn't history. It was like recent, you know, it was a very fresh and vivid memory. And so Reagan is very, very mindful of that. He knows that there's very little public opinion for sending troops in. He doesn't want our troops to get bogged down in a quagmire or, or a civil war or anything. Um, and, and so in his eight years in office, coming back around directly to Grenada, the only time in those eight years that he deploys ground troops in combat is in Grenada, which is a relatively small uh, operation. You know, combat operations are over within within a few days of it. Uh, the Marines in Beirut, that they were there as peacekeepers. Uh, and again, that was, a, I think, a, um, a lot of problems with that particular mission, but the key was not seen as sending them, it wasn't intended to send them into combat. He uses uh, force a couple times against Libya, but that those are um, bombing or, or uh, fighter, uh, you know, fighter to fighter shoot downs. There's no ground troops involved. Uh, so, so on, on Grenada itself, um, Reagan was very focused on the Western Hemisphere. He was very concerned about future uh, communist inroads being made in the Western Hemisphere. The the Sandinista revolution, you know, the communist takeover of Nicaragua in 1979 had been a real shock to the system and to him personally. And he worried that that might be the leading edge of further communist inroads in the region. And of course, when Grenada, um, he had been focused on Grenada. I think he had first even mentioned Grenada, maybe in a campaign speech in 1979. I, the, the details of my book, I can't recall it exactly here, but he'd been worried about Grenada for a few years. And then as the initial quote unquote, moderate communist regime was an ousted in um, October of 83 for an even more radical communist regime. And then he saw that the Cubans and Soviets were constructing a 10,000 foot runway, you know, which is way more than you need for any commercial purposes. This is not for tourist jets. He worried we've got another Cuba or Nicaragua in the the offing here. Um, And this could really... uh, uh, jeopardize American interests and American security much closer to home. And he would never say the phrase domino theory, but he worried that this will be a another stepping stone for further communist insurgencies in the region, you know, perhaps a takeover of El Salvador, he, he worried about um, and, and others. And so that's why between that worry about communist inroads in the region, and then the concern about the American medical students, of course, Recall the other big foreign policy trauma of 1979 and 80 had been the Iranian revolution and the hostage crisis when 52 Americans were held hostage in in Iran. And so three years later, he's now thinking we can't have another one of those on an even larger scale in a place like Grenada. So that's why 
he overcomes his reticence about deploying troops in combat and says, all right, we've got to, you know, send in the Marines and the Rangers and the SEALs. You know, it's a, it's a very, very joint, joint operation. And it, it, it's, you know, it's very successful, right? There's some operational messiness to it. It, you know, for any defense wonks listening in, uh, Grenada leads very directly to Goldwater Nichols uh, in, in 86 and more, more joint reforms, but we won't, we won't go down that, that rabbit trail. Strategically, it works, right? It restores uh, a you know democratically uh, elected regime in the region. Um, they discover that wow, there were thousands of Cuban troops here and even more Soviet and North Korean advisors than we than we had when he had realized. And George Shultz, uh, in particular, would often highlight Grenada as. Um, having a strong demonstration effect that shows the world the United States is now past its Vietnam syndrome of being too traumatized to ever deploy troops in combat again and is willing to if the if the need if the need is there. Now we don't at all anymore do so during the Reagan administration, but Schultz believed that even that credible threat of force was one of the after effects of of, of Grenada. And so it had um, more strategic significance than the relatively small scale of the tactical operation. Yeah. I, you know, it, 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 you, as you were sort of talking about all that, it, it got me thinking about the, the Reagan doctrine, because I think this is really a, a notable example of seeing that in action, even though he doesn't really um, articulate that publicly until his State of the Union address in, in 1985. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could talk to us, Will, about the Reagan doctrine, what that's all about and, and how that was sort of played out in practice throughout Reagan's time in office. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and again, very important for understanding him. So I'm glad you highlight this. Um, so the Reagan doctrine in brief is supporting um, other forces uh, to, to do their own fighting. Um, particularly, it is supporting anti-communist insurgencies uh, in other countries uh, that are trying to um, resist the further expansion of, of, of communism. Um, and there's, again, a couple threads that go into it. One is it very much is a lesson learned or product of Vietnam, the sense of, all right, it's a mistake to deploy massive numbers of American ground troops into uh, some of these other civil wars or um or communist, non-communist fights, but we also don't want to just allow those countries to fall to communism. And so, okay, well, here's a third option. Let's just provide the 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 material, the weapons, the 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 equipment, sometimes the training for those forces to do their own fighting. In some ways, to do you know, America's fighting fighting for it. So that's that's one strain. Another is. Um, putting it in a broader sweep of history a little bit, Reagan had seen that, well, throughout the 1970s, communism had made tremendous advances in the developing world. So just to rattle off a number of them, uh, in about a, you know, just eight year period um, from 73 to 80 uh, to 81, um, South Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, Ethiopia, Angola, Mozambique, Nicaragua, Grenada, and a few others, South Yemen, all fall to communism. Um, now these each one is localized. Each one has its own particularities. You know, obviously each one of these is complicated. But in the main, you know, the Kremlin was at least in part, if not, you know, sometimes fully supporting these um, these these uh, these co- communist takeovers, and. Uh, and so Reagan, you know, sees this and is very, wor- very worried about that, but also thinks it may be a, an example of Soviet overextension and vulnerability. And then by the early 1980s, things reverse where now um, 
most of the insurgencies around the world uh, are not communist insurgencies to take over countries, but rather anti-communist insurgencies where, you know, uh, cohorts of people within those countries saying, we don't like being ruled by a communist regime. We don't like this takeover and we're going to fight back against it. You know, the Angola rebels, uh, the, the UNITA rebels in Angola, um, the uh, you know anti-communist forces in Cambodia, uh, of course, the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, the Contras in, in Nicaragua. And so Reagan sees that new trend. And there's some pretty sophisticated CIA analysis uh, highlighting that for him. He says, all right, well, let's let's support these. Um, so that's also what, what goes into the Reagan doctrine. Moving into into Reagan's second term, um, I think it's important to really talk about how the, the U.S.-Soviet relationship shifts, right? And in the beginning of 1985, just as Reagan is, is settling in for another four years, uh, we have a new Soviet leader installed, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev. I was wondering if you could talk to us about how that ch- – this new leader in the Soviet Union, all of the reforms that Gorbachev tries to bring in to the Soviet Union to change that system and try and open it up and, and restructure the economy. How does that? How do? How does Reagan perceive Gorbachev, and how does that change the tenor of Soviet American relations? Yeah, it's profoundly transformative. And again, as you know, um, you know, my book is very much focused on Reagan and the Reagan administration. Uh, and their role in the peaceful end of the Cold War. But Gorbachev is also essential, uh, an essential part of that overall story, uh, certainly essential to and indispensable for the peaceful end of the Cold War. Uh, and so even though I don't write this as an international history, it's, it's American focused. I, I just want to put that, that out there as an important clarification. So uh, picking up on a, a comment I'd made earlier about from his first term, Reagan is pressing the Soviet system to produce a reformer, kind of looking for a reformer. As you know, I titled my, um, the chapter in my book in 1985, Waiting for Gorbachev, because he'd been waiting for a Gorbachev uh, type to come to power. So I think from the beginning, Reagan is very intrigued by Gorbachev. Um, he had heard after Thatcher's first meeting with Gorbachev, her famous phrase, you know, this is a man with whom we can do business. Um, Schultz and Vice President Bush uh, travel to Moscow in March of 85 for Chernyenko's funeral. And then they, they meet with Gorbachev, you know, his first day or two in office, they come back, um, with pretty favorable assessments for Reagan saying, Hey, we think there's something new to this guy. He's, he's tough. He's strong. He's still a committed communist, but he also seems to be a committed reformer, uh, and, and someone that we can, uh, potentially negotiate with in ways that his predecessors were, were not. And so Reagan, I would say is intrigued, is very open to this. This is something he's been looking for, but he doesn't fully embrace Gorbachev initially either. He's also wary, um, you know, he doesn't want to be, be snookered. Uh, he wants to see if some of Gorbachev's rhetoric is, is real. Of course, you know, Gorbachev, uh, when he comes to power, has some ambitious reform ideas, but also uh, over his first few months starts to realize that the Soviet system is not even worse shape than Gorbachev himself had known. You know, it's, it's built on this edifice of lies. He can't even get clear and accurate numbers on what the Soviet economy is overall, how much of its money is being spent on its military budget and, and so forth. And so there's a intrigue and a wariness uh, on, on Reagan's part. Uh, and he and Gorbachev start that, you know, delicate mutual dance of saying, all right, you know, should we meet? How are we going to do this? And eventually they do in Geneva um, about, I guess, what, you know, eight months after Gorbachev takes power. You know, it's it's the summit meetings that I think really leave a, a strong impression on, on on both leaders and and create a new type of environment 
um, for both the superpowers in, in trying to come to you know a series of mutual accommodations that are going to try and ratchet down the tension in the Cold War. Can you talk to us a little bit about some of those summits? I mean, there's Geneva, which you just mentioned. There's Reykjavik, where you have the big missed opportunity. There's obviously Washington, and then there's Moscow um, mm-hmm. at the very end of Reagan's presidency. What impact does the summitry have on the ability for both countries to um, try and negotiate and, and reach some accommodations on their on their big differences. Yeah, they're vital. They're absolutely transformative. And uh, again, as you know from reading the book, and I hope other readers will will pick this up, uh, it is almost impossible to overstate the drama, the consequence of the of these summits. I mean, they're not just the most notable events of Reagan's presidency. They're some of the most notable events in world history, or certainly in in twentieth century history. Right? Um, and uh, it, it's uh, it, you know they 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 continue to be absolutely fascinating and so many you know nuances and angles to explore a, a few highlights to to mention on, on the summits um one is they are vital for Reagan and Gorbachev just building that personal relationship. And you and I as historians know that um, the personal factor, personal relationships, individual leadership, these things really matter a lot in history and world events. But sometimes for other scholars focused on broader structural forces uh, or you know, bigger IR theories, uh, intangible and focused things like the relationships between individual leaders can sometimes be downplayed or, or marginalized. And, and I think these summits are a great case study in how just how important those personal relationships are. And and Reagan and Gorbachev both approach those in the same way. They're fascinated by each other. They know they have some commonalities in their respective backgrounds. Uh, they have great responsibilities to the world and to their to their home their home countries. And so they both take the summits very seriously. And you know by the end by Moscow in '88 especially as you mentioned, it's really remarkable to see the, um, the, the personal affection between the two of them. They genuinely enjoy each other. They've built a real, a real friendship there, but the summits of course are primarily about policies. Um, another thing to, to stress that really comes out in reading the memorandum of conversation from the summits, interviewing people who are there, reading other, other memoirs is how intense they were. Uh, and including very combative at times, right? So I don't want to overly romanticize the the genuine friendship between Reagan and Gorbachev. They are also, you know, rhetorically at each other's throats. I mean, you know, losing their tempers, pounding the table, yelling, uh, threatening nuclear war. <laughs> Gorbachev does times. Uh, this is this is serious business, and with with serious differences. The third thing to uh, stress is, especially with the first two summits, Geneva and Reykjavik. They accomplish very little in terms of um, specific policy outcomes. Okay, now they're very consequential for you know reasons I mentioned, and we'll come back to. But usually, the tradition in the Cold War had been with a superpower summit when you know, an American president and Soviet leader are getting together. There will be a, have been months of elaborate pre-negotiations by their staffs, and at the summits, they will close by announcing a new arms control agreement, a new agreement on this, a new agreement on that. Um, very little of those come out of either Geneva or or Reykjavik. You know, in both of those, Reagan and Gorbachev try. You know, they're exploring different things. Um, Gorbachev, of course, is obsessed with the Strategic Defense Initiative and trying to eliminate that. They're talking about INF. They're talking about human rights. Um, uh, you know, the, the the Soviet invasion of, of, of Afghanistan, all those different issues. But they don't actually accomplish anything where the summit ends and the, there's a grand signing of different treaties or policy agreements. Um, rather, those summits create the conditions 
for those other policy achievements in in, in other contexts. Uh, you know, again, even though Reykjavik, they come close but fail to agree to abolish all nuclear weapons. Uh, a direct fruit of Reykjavik is the agreement several months later to abolish all intermediate range nuclear missiles. And of course, the, the December 1987 signing of the INF Treaty. Um, then one of the theme, uh, and again, we can do hours and hours just on the summit, so don't worry, I'll try to do this very quickly, um, is especially by Moscow in 1988, um, the summits are the culminating of what we started the discussion with, Reagan's battle of ideas in the Cold War, Reagan's efforts to uh, promote uh, free societies as a better alternative to Soviet communism to promote, you know, free markets as better than uh, command economies to, to promote democracy and self-government as better than totalitarianism to promote religious faith and religious freedom as better than atheism, all these things. It really culminates in, in Moscow. Um, you know, he gives his iconic speech at Moscow State University extolling the virtues of a free society. He spends a lot of his personal time with Reagan trying to persuade Gor- Reagan, uh, excuse me, with Gorbachev trying to persuade Gorbachev to believe in democracy and believe in God even. I mean, it becomes very spiritual. Uh, and so I see Moscow as this culmination of, you know, Reagan's eight-year strategy and especially his four years of relationship building with uh, with Gorbachev. It all, it all comes together there. Yeah. Something that we've talked a lot through this conversation is this idea of, you know, having a values-based foreign policy, right? Leading with your values. And that's something that very much that Reagan um, does. And I, th- and I think you could, as you successfully argue, does it, does it quite fruitfully. But, you know, his predecessor also tried to do something and, and very famously tried to restore the sense of value and human rights to American foreign policy, but has a very different track record on those issues. How is Reagan able to successfully you know, create a foreign policy vision that really centers American values at its heart. Yeah, this is absolutely vital to understanding Reagan and his legacies. I appreciate you asking about it. Um, and first, to while I'm, we're focusing, of course, on Reagan's own policies and decision making. I've got to say that context matters, structural forces matter. And so, when Reagan, you know, takes office in in 1981, we can now, in hindsight, see that you already have the beginnings of. Huntington's third wave of democratization. You know, Spain and Portugal had democratized a few years earlier. Some of the Latin American countries are starting to. You're seeing some of the seeds. And so he inherits a little bit, we now know a little bit more of a favorable hand on uh, democratization and spread of markets in 81 than Carter necessarily had in 77. So I, I want to put that context out there. However, with Reagan, there's a very uh, you know firm commitment and a lot of resources uh, put, put into this, certainly to supporting human rights and religious freedom behind the Iron Curtain in Soviet, uh, you know, in, in, in the within within Soviet Soviet bloc. And that's a very important part of his, his diplomacy, getting Christians and Jews, you know, released from prison, um, allowed to seek, uh, you know, refugees in Israel or, or asylum in, in, in the United States, his support for solidarity um, in, in Poland, his partnership with Pope John Paul II. Again, none of these are using military means. This is not at all imposing democracy at gunpoint or uh, in, you know, in any uh, you know, concept like that, which for good reason is, is not, not in favor. These are all, all using the, the peaceful tools of diplomacy, um, of broadcasting, of information operations, uh, certainly of, of economic aid. Um, but the other key part is by 1982, Reagan uh, 
it's clear decides that we need the United States needs to press its right wing authoritarian allies to reform and democratize too. And in some ways, that's even more risky than pressing communist countries to free dissidents. And the reason is. Um, with the communist countries, uh, we don't have as much leverage with them. But if they decide, you know, not to follow, uh, you know, American admonitions, there it's less cost to us too, right? We don't have many other equities in, in that relationship. We're already adversarial. Whereas when Reagan starts pressing uh, the South Korean military dictatorship, the uh, Marcos in the Philippines, um, the uh, the military dictatorship in Taiwan. Pinochet and Chile, all these right-wing military dictators, they were important American security partners. They had been bulwarks against communism. We need to we need to put that out there. And so when he's pressing them to democratize, uh, to allow multi-party elections, to the, for the dictators to step aside, there's a real risk that you could also lose an important American ally. You could lose basing rights there for our troops in some cases, uh, that they might be replaced by a revolutionary, even a communist government instead, or that they might just turn against the United States and want to end their alliance with us in the case of the Philippines and South Korea. So there's much higher stakes. Uh, and I don't think that's often fully, fully appreciated. And yet Reagan believes both for moral consistency and a strategic imperative um, that we need to support these transitions to democracy. And again, with those countries and then with Argentina and Brazil and, and even El, El Salvador, um, you know, these are largely, not always, but largely successful democratic transitions, and they take place peacefully. Uh, and uh, again, I think it's a really important part of the Reagan record. You know, as my book goes into, it's more nuanced and complicated. We're given the, the top line summary here. Um, but, uh, but for Reagan, uh, I think that's an underappreciated part of part of his legacy. Talking about legacy, as we move to the end of our conversation, I want to ask you a sort of a two-part question for us to finish off here. And the first is, as we reflect on Reagan, you know, he was he left office, um, you know, over three decades ago. Um, what do we? And as the partisan divisions and, and the passions, I think, uh, dampen around him, uh, especially in the last few years. What are some of the things that we have failed to understand about Reagan's foreign policy um, in the past that you know that we could that we really need to appreciate thinking about American foreign policy in the present and the future? And the second and the second question is, what were some of the challenges that you had um, writing this book? You know, I know you spent many years working on it. Reagan, I think, similarly to Roosevelt, is a is a often talked about as an enigma, um, sort of a, a mysterious um, characters, even though they're sort of ubiquitous and they're everywhere um, for various reasons, which I'm sure you'll explain. So I was wondering if you could also talk about some of the challenges of, of not only talking about Reagan's foreign policy, but, you know, centering him in it um, because he, you know, often didn't, um, you know, he kept diaries, but he often didn't write a lot of things down or and he wasn't, um, you know, there wasn't a huge written record uh, in some cases of, of what he thought about issues. So how, do, how should we reckon with Reagan's foreign policy now and in the future? And what were some of the challenges that you found in, in writing this um, in writing this book? Sure. Yeah. On the on, on the first one, uh, I do. It, it, it's a nice follow on to our uh, the previous question about the role of values uh, in his foreign policy. And I do think um, 
really appreciating that this is a, I think, a largely successful case study of how a president can bring America's values and interests into alignment. Certainly, in 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 a in, a, in the bigger picture and in, and in the longer term, um, and that he was not just about defeating Soviet communism or delegitimizing you know Soviet communism uh, as a bad idea, but also about promoting the good idea of free societies. And O'Regan very much believes in that trinity of political freedom, economic freedom, and religious freedom. Uh, this is why he's very committed to an open trading order. He does, you know, he, he strongly resists the protectionism of his day. You know, he's very formed by growing up in the 1930s in the Great Depression, and he had seen what he saw as the problems of protectionism and isolationism, and he would often refer to that in, in, pub, in public life. Um, uh, and so, uh, so he's w- wants to expand and support the contour, the, the, you know, the growth of the free world of, uh, open and free economies linked together with an open trading order of democratic uh, governments that respect the human rights and religious freedom of their, of their own, of their own people. Um, and I think that's, that was not just in- incidental for him. Then on the challenges of, of writing the book and writing about him, um, yeah, he remains an enigmatic and somewhat elusive character. Uh, you know, I never met him in person. I feel like I got to know him somewhat researching and writing about him so much for the last last decade um but uh, but he has confounded many a biographer i am not a biographer myself you know the book is only about his um foreign policy during his presidency so it's you know it's not a it's not a full, full life biography but i do think there's enough now available in the archival record his his diaries are very important um many recently declassified documents transcripts of national security council meetings a lot of recently declassified um uh, transcripts from his meetings with heads of state that there's enough material there for a scholar to work with and at least you know, create a, a provisional picture of Reagan, his strategic convictions, his leadership, his role in policy decisions, um, uh, you know, the, the, some, of the, some of the different theme, themes of the book. Uh, and I also try to capture just the chaos and challenges of policymaking, you know, the cascade of different issues landing on his desk every day and how hard those are to, 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 nav- to navigate. So. Yeah, I mean, so much really to, to unpack here, um, and and the unique perspective you have as both a scholar and and a policymaker um, really shines through in this book. So, Will, thank you so much uh, for coming on the podcast today and and talking us through that book. Um, we had an excellent conversation. Um, for our listeners, again, the book is The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, The Cold War, and the World on the Brink, and it's out now, so maybe a great holiday gift um, for you or your loved ones um, with uh, the holidays coming up in a few weeks. So thanks again for coming on, Will. Thank you, Grant. It's been a real pleasure.